and uh, thank you for giving me your time um, so how are you today yeah pretty well thank you uh, it's good to talk to you looking forward to, to the conversation okay thank you so first thing which I want to um, get to is your professional title is behavioral entomologist yes I had to google it I won't lie <laughs> Because it's not a common thing which you just, you know, you say, oh yeah, I'm a behavioral entomologist and you're like, yeah, I kind of know what it is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so I had to spend three, four minutes. So it would be better if you can explain that what it means to you and what do you do and how this field has different areas. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, it's not perhaps the most accessible job title, but I'm a, a research fellow uh, in behavioral entomology and an entomologist is somebody who studies insects uh, and the behavior part, well, that's the behavior of insects. So a lot of my work is trying to understand uh, the sensory systems that mos the mosquitoes, which is what the insect that I study, uh, the sensory systems that they use and how they integrate sensory cues from the environment into behavior. So what translates from the environment into a stimulus that would cause them to act in a certain way. Okay, so you said mosquitoes. Is this because that's your favorite insect? Or <laughs> uh, then I wouldn't say they're my favorite insect, um, but they are the focus of my research. So what is your favorite insect? Uh, that's a really good question. There are so many really, really cool insects out there. Uh, mosquitoes are really fascinating and, and really incredible in their behavior, in their physiology, uh, and their anatomy. And when you actually get them underneath the microscope, they're quite sometimes quite colorful. They're a bit feathery. They can have lots of different colored scales on them. Um, and sometimes you even get kind of very iridescent, disco-esque mosquitoes that look quite incredible. Um, but I would, yeah, that's a really good question. What is my favorite insect? I, I have really fond childhood memories of uh, seeing stag beetles flying around in the country lanes near where my grandparents lived. Uh, it's not very often that you see stag beetles these days, um, but they're so big, they kind of got these huge armor plates on and they really make quite a noise when they're flying around. So I have some, some really strong, happy memories of playing in country lanes and seeing stag beetles flying around in the summer. Okay. So mosquitoes, of course, is focus of your research, which you are doing right now. So, I mean, before getting into more technical aspects of the research, um, what about um, all, because we have, as humans, have always interacted with mosquitoes somehow a lot. I mean, uh, since I was a kid, this is the one thing which I would know that there are mosquitoes which would be there and bite you or something. So, how are different myths which we hear i mean tell me that what are there's so many myths there's just so many myths so let's let's bust some or maybe like <laughs> illuminate some light on them yeah so i guess uh, one thing i've noticed that whenever i explain to people that i work with mosquitoes everybody has a story about how attractive they are to mosquitoes or you know that their husband is more attractive than they are or that their son is you know completely insect proof but their daughter gets bitten lots or so everybody relates to the nuisance and the annoyance that comes with mosquitoes we can all remember a night sometime summer evening hearing that horrible buzzing drone in our ear as we're trying to go to sleep or, or coming back with nasty bites from a camping trip or time down by the lake so so lots of people have a, a kind of understanding that there are mosquitoes out there and they they can cause you a bit of a nuisance um, there are certainly lots of myths a lot of them really are to do with uh, the kind of foods that you can eat that would make mosquitoes less attracted to you or more attracted to you so uh, there's there's plenty of kind of hearsay that things like drinking beer or eating marmite uh, or spicy foods or garlic can repel mosquitoes, but there really is no good scientific evidence that that's the case. So unfortunately, even if you want to have a nice pint of beer in the evening, go ahead, but don't expect that it will help you prevent having any mosquito bites. That does look like an excuse to have. Beer. I think it might be. <laughs> so. So yeah, I mean, so but the, on the other side of it, what are the some common knowledge which is which we hear, which happens to be true? Like after a scientific study, you find out wow, that is actually kind of true. 
Well, I think one thing that's quite well understood by people is that some people are more attractive to mosquitoes than others, and that is true. Um, and there have been some really good scientific studies looking into this. Um, so uh, a, a colleague at NRI has actually done a study with twins. Uh, so they were looking at identical and non-identical twins to see if mosquitoes were equally attracted to the identical twins and whether or not they might be differentially attractive to the non-identical twins. And actually that was found to be the case that the, the number of mosquitoes that flew to wall, towards odours so skin odours from identical twins was very similar, but that, that was quite different if they were non-identical twins, so if their genetics were different. Um, and there's also been other studies where people have been uh, kind of ranked according to their attractiveness to mosquitoes. Uh, and then scientists will look at the bacteria that the people have on their skin. So we know that uh, from various studies that the attraction that mosquitoes have for individuals is really driven by odour. So the smell of, of an animal is really important in the attraction of a mosquito to that animal. And that's really not caused by poor hygiene or anything like that. It's just the natural bacteria that we have living on our skin. It's perfectly healthy skin. Um, there's thousands of different types of bacteria that could be present on our skin, and they all produce slightly different odors. And mosquitoes have evolved to respond to those different odors. And some people are just, unfortunately, they have a slightly different community of bacteria that produce more of the attractive odors. And some people are lucky enough to have fewer of those bacteria and so are not quite as attracted, uh, attractive to mosquitoes. So that is true, that, that people are unfortunately uh, either blessed or cursed with being slightly more or less attractive to mosquitoes. Okay, I, I haven't found out yet, actually. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I got bit on that. Fair bit, fair bit of deal, but I, I don't know. I think I'm right in the middle. My, <laughs> and, yeah. and sometimes some, some people actually are just uh, more or less sensitive to the bite of the mosquito. So if you have a very strong immune response to the mosquito's bite, uh, you might notice the bite slightly more than somebody who is not reacting to them. So it can be down to your physiological response as well, because as the, the mosquito is, is not just a, a syringe sucking up your blood, they're injecting you with their saliva and, and you can have a reaction to that saliva and that's what causes the kind of typical itchy, red, swollen welt on your skin. So this is fascinating. I mean, it's so interesting that there's, there's a different community of bacteria living which actually varies from one individual to another. This actually kind of tells me that how much interconnected this stimuli which you were talking about, which you are studying the visual cues and the smells and how they react, it's actually directly somehow connected to through the small bacteria living or our skin. So how how it varies, like is there a reason why there are different bacteria on different people or is just is it just millions of bacteria and yeah that's a really good question i mean some of it will be your exposure and an environment to the kinds of bacteria that you pick up on your skin and different parts of the body are slightly more sweaty and produce more sweat that the bacteria can can feed and grow on so Sweat is attractive to mosquitoes, but fresh sweat is not particularly so, but it's food for the bacteria that, that can grow on our skin. So, so there's just a huge amount of variation from person to person. Um, and some of that is down to their physical con condition, to their age, but, but really I think it's quite a random process. So in your research with mosquitoes and looking at also the, how it interacts with the human because there's a bit of nuisance issue, mm -hmm. um, would, would I be right to say that it is a lot of interconnectedness, which is a small part of this ecosystem? Are you also focusing some part of your research on this aspect? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about it as a kind of interconnected system. So, of course, mosquitoes require a blood meal. So they are not doing it just to be a nuisance. They actually have to have that blood. And... Again, coming back to myths, uh, in fact, it's only the female mosquito that bites rather than females and males. And the reason the female bites is that she needs lots of protein to develop her eggs for the next generation. So a good source of protein is blood. Uh, so the, the female will be driven to, to find a blood meal. Uh, so she's dependent on having some kind of host animal, be it a person uh, or another kind of, of animal that she can feed on and get the blood that she needs to develop her eggs. So 
that's a kind of evolutionary interconnectedness that without those other animals, the mosquito wouldn't be able to uh, to feed and develop her eggs successfully and then produce the next generation of, of mosquitoes. But the, the main interest in studying mosquitoes, of course, is because they can transmit disease through that process of, of sucking up blood and then injecting saliva, which could be infected with viruses or parasites into the same person. Uh, and that has, as you say, is an interconnected thing that's happened over evolutionary time, where the main uh, mosquito vector, we say vector is an insect that can transmit disease, uh, the main mosquito vectors uh, are those that really feed quite heavily on humans compared to other animals. But they do feed on other species as well, everything from cows and dogs down to you know frogs and birds. So uh, it takes some comfort in knowing that it's not just humans that are <laughs> irritated and annoyed by, uh, by, by mosquito bites. So yeah, mosquitoes are kind of vampires. In a way, you can you can boil this all down to yes, they, yeah. but interestingly, not all mosquitoes suck blood. So there are um, a group of mosquitoes called Toxorhynchites, uh, and they are really some of the largest mosquitoes. They're, they're many times bigger than uh, Anopheles, which are, for example, the mosquitoes that carry disease uh, and they carry malaria. Uh, Toxorhynchites are huge, but they never bite people. So the males and females will feed only on sugar. In the environment so that could be nectar from plants it could be uh, fallen fruit kind of sugary uh, liquid that comes out of fr uh, fallen fruit uh, so so not all mosquitoes bite and of those that do it's only the females and of those females that do there's only a few that really bother people uh, and those are of course the ones that we're focused on so um, how big if we say let's say if if we measure it through our finger, how big would they be? Well, I have relatively oh. small hands, so I don't know if that's a helpful comparison. But let's say like a, a typical um, anopheline, which is one of the, the malaria mosquitoes, would probably be smaller than the size of your little fingernail. Um, okay. So quite small, whereas toxorhynchites is probably uh, the size of maybe your thumbnail or a bit bigger. So th there's quite a big difference there. Yeah, that is big, yeah, definitely with mosquitoes. So I actually never realized until I had a conversation when um, I was interested in one of the wetland life projects, which I would refer to now, that there are different type of insects which everyone else considers to be mosquitoes. So how much of those insects are there and do they suck blood or um, they also bite and they cause pretty similar sort of irritation so that's why everyone considers those just mosquitoes or are they really similar so it doesn't really matter it's more like a scientific term no there are lots and lots of different insects that will bite animals uh, and some of them do it through different ways so a mosquito uh, they really do have this very sharp elongated what we describe as a proboscis so it's a little bit like a, a syringe that pierces the skin interestingly though once it's inside the skin that needle is not rigid it can move around so it's prehensile so it can find the capillaries inside your cells um, move between the cells until it can find that source of blood that's flowing and then it will pierce the capillary and, and suck up blood um, in the uk there are lots of other biting insects so biting midges uh, which in scotland are a particularly big problem you can get very high numbers numbers of biting midges um, and of course overseas there's a whole other range of things like sand flies, tetsy fly, uh, and they can bite through various different means. So some of them will uh, create a small pool of blood by kind of rasping at the skin and then lap up blood from that rather than injecting uh, a sucking device into the skin. So there's lots of different insects that can cause uh, biting nuisance to, to people and animals. So uh, female mosquitoes and those ones who rely on blood and you said that how evolutionarily this is interconnected. So is there a, um, some sort of a difference or, or between primates in general and the mosquitoes and other mammals or there is not really any scientific difference? Uh, there's quite a big difference. So as I said, some mosquitoes will really just feed on people. So Anopheles gambi is the main malaria vector in Africa, 
uh, and the female of that species will feed almost exclusively uh, on humans. Uh, and that's what makes them such good disease vectors because they will pick up a disease from one person and transmit it to another. Now they have a very uh, closely related species called Anopheles arabiensis. In fact, morphologically, you can't tell them apart. They look the same. You have to do a genetic test to see if they're uh, Anopheles gambi or Anopheles arabiensis. And arabiensis will feed on cattle as well as humans. So that makes them a slightly less powerful vector of disease because they might feed on a cow which is no problem and then on a person and then maybe become infected and then go back to a cow which again is not so much of a problem um, the diseases that they carry tend to um, for malaria tend to be human malaria parasites which means they're just transmitted between humans um, but I have spent some time working in Malaysia on a fairly recently discovered malaria parasite um, which was originally found in macaque monkeys and that we have found is transmissible to humans uh, so it goes to show that the, the kind of close relatedness between humans and non-human primates uh, is a potential avenue for new or emerging diseases. Is there any particular reason why certain mosquito um, species got more closer or not I don't know how to put it but they had more taste towards primates, human or non-human? Well, it, it's all really dependent on the environment that the insect is evolving in over very, very long time periods. And uh, in the rainforests of Borneo, which is where uh, this uh, primate malaria originated, uh, then of course the mosquitoes are, are mostly spending their, their time in the same environment as macaque monkeys. Uh, so there's a strong uh, spatial relationship between between the two species. So over time, uh, that's turned into a, a stable kind of disease transmission cycle between macaque monkeys. And in that particular case, what's happened is uh, we've changed the landscape quite rapidly in that area of the world, largely through deforestation and uh, cut and burn clearing to make way for plantations of crops like palm oil. And that rapid environmental change has really changed the interactions between lots of species, but also between macaque monkeys and the mosquitoes that were transmitting this macaque malaria. And people com coming into that habitat much more frequently. Um, so we, as we change the landscape, we're also changing the disease transmission dynamics quite rapidly and on quite a large scale. So these kind of new emerging disease events uh, are likely to occur. Okay. So yeah, this is funny that we do change a lot of environment and then we try to find the cure for it rather than try to get to the source of actually understanding why the actual outbreak happened. I mean, you must have seen this happening so many times because you've, you've been working in the field. Is, is this something which is happening these days? Is, is it that we understand things more on reactive level than to, to actually go into the complications, which is always harder and it's more nuanced and there's no proper answer to that. So that's why we always tend to maybe react to things. Well, I mean, that's a, a huge question. Um, I think quite often in terms of medical entomology, so dealing with insect-borne diseases, we we can be somewhat reactive. Um, there's so much complexity in these relationships that we don't fully understand um, that until the situation arises, we, it's almost impossible to predict that these sorts of things will happen. But on the other hand, there, there are there's a huge amount that we do know about uh, malaria, about other mosquito-borne diseases like uh, yellow fever. Uh, and we have vaccines for yellow fever. So uh, there's, there is a lot of uh, uncertainty. And as, as the situation changes from place to place and even things like insecticide resistance, where we're doing a really good job of controlling mosquitoes, but maybe they're starting to develop resistance, we can't necessarily predict exactly how that's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and what the precise consequences will be. So there's always a place to be asking these questions as we're going through, trying to make sensible predictions, trying to prevent 
making mistakes that perhaps we've seen in the past, but also dealing with unprecedented circumstances or, or change that we weren't expecting to happen uh, and making sure that we can try and understand the basics of, of what's going on and, and then hopefully give a sensible ways of dealing with it. One, one segue, which is, uh, you, you said that um, you must be under, trying to understand and go in and research and you're sharing it with the other colleagues. Um, is there anything which you think recently, what you have seen in your field and with, the, with other researchers, um, which would spill over to another field and you think would actually, you know, help them understand? Is there any topic like that which you have seen, read? Uh, well, I I take a lot of inspiration from um, looking around at other disease transmission systems. So as I say, I'm focused on mosquitoes and the diseases that they transmit. Um, but uh, previous colleagues at NRI have done fantastic work looking at tsetse flies, which carry sleeping sickness, which is a really terrible disease. And it's almost certainly fatal if it's untreated. Um, and their work has been a very, very systematic and step-by-step -step process of understanding everything about that tsetse fly's behavior, um, and then using that information very sensibly, very slowly to create solutions for controlling uh, the tsetse fly and reducing cases of sleeping sickness. And they've had huge success by taking that approach. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot that even uh, we can learn in the mosquito control and mosquito behavior world from from looking at studies like theirs uh, to, to think about best ways of, of kind of structuring our scientific programs of research to get the very best out of them. And that's a very closely allied field. Um, but I think part of being a scientist is always looking around you and seeing what's going on in, in other fields. Um, closely related or not, just to, to have that inspiration and, and you never know what idea you might kind of latch onto and go, that could, that could work or it could be interesting to think about things from that point of view. So sleeping sickness in humans, um, any like small adults, maybe it'll just, it was just... Yeah, if, you, if you're bitten by an infected tsetse fly, then you can develop... Uh, sleeping sickness. It also affects animals um, in a slightly different way, but uh, it's a real burden in sub-Saharan Africa and unfortunately um, in very similar areas that are also affected by malaria and other insect-carried diseases. So you have lots and lots of instances of, of insect-caused diseases in the same area. It can really uh, take its toll on a population. Okay, so you have observed mosquitoes or maybe other insects so close yes I, I can imagine that so many hours of uh, microscopes and mosquitoes or other insects one of the first time i remember caring about a mosquito i think because generally you it's just a general thing you don't really have an individual relationship with a mosquito <laughs> no. um, once uh, i was listening to richard dawkins and he was explaining about something else which I care a lot and he gave an example of a mosquito and he started explaining for like 10 minutes that how beautiful a mosquito is and it actually you know grabbed my attention so I looked more and I wanted to find out a little more and I understood that oh this is really I mean this is a very fascinating creature which we don't really Give that much credit at all especially in our society mm. so for you when you were young uh, i mean how come all what we have talked about have led you to actually be this interested in all these things i mean yeah you can you can tell me however you want uh, you can go from the start you can <laughs> go from one person is there a one person I, I don't know so um yeah i certainly never thought that i would be working on mosquitoes if you asked me you know even 10 years ago it's not something that i i thought i would be making a career out of for sure um i've always been interested in natural history and biology and animals and plants and and i've always been kind of fascinated by that and and science in general um and i did a science at school uh, biology a levels and and then i didn't go straight to university I took a little bit of time to go away and work in something completely unrelated and then I did a degree 
uh, in environmental science because I'm quite passionately motivated to look at ways of solving environmental issues. There's lots and lots of scientific research papers about climate change and uh, eutrophication and you know, all kinds of environmental issues, but translating that scientific research into behavior change or actions that will help prevent those kinds of issues is quite hard. And, and understanding the science, but also understanding the human behavior that could, uh, could help those issues, uh, I found quite fascinating. Um, and in the process of my degree, um, I met Professor Gabriella Gibson, who ultimately turned into my PhD supervisor when she had a, an opening. Uh, and it really was a kind of completely random thing to see advertised a PhD in uh, mosquito behavior. And I had to think about it and I had to read around some of the literature when I'd finished my degree. And I thought this is really fascinating and it feels um, intellectually rewarding as a topic, but something that I think, uh, well, I certainly thought at the time and, and still do, could have a really big impact. And I think for me, the personal motivation is, yes, having a fascination for uh, science and biology in particular, but also having uh, that motivation come from thinking what impact your work could have. So uh, I might not have the same motivation for studying, I don't know, butterflies as beautiful as they are and, and incredibly important they are as pollinators, but um, I feel really driven to do something that might ultimately have an impact on people who are suffering under uh, conditions of endemic malaria or other mosquito-borne diseases and viruses. So that for me is the kind of driving motivation and interest in, in this particular area, but not something that I sat at school with a careers advisor and thought, yeah, I'm definitely going to work on mosquitoes when I'm older. And I, if I'd known, I maybe would have you know, done things slightly differently and, and been more focused on that. But um, I, I, think, I think knowing that there's a potential impact from your work is, is really important for me. Yeah. So any, I mean, you, have you grown up close to nature? In some ways, I mean, I, I grew up in a fairly typical suburb of a fairly large town, and um, but my family have always been interested in the outdoors and camping field trips and that kind of thing. And uh, certainly I learned a lot from my grandparents about nature and wildlife just from going on walks in the countryside or even just playing at the allotment and looking at the birds and the insects that were playing around. And I think when you're a kid, insect, insects are just such a great thing to, to learn about because they're so small, but they're kind of uh, easy to observe and you just see them everywhere once you start looking. Um, so yeah, I've always had that interest in, in biology and I kind of thought about doing biology when I was, when, when I was younger. Um, but I didn't really understand what I would be able to do <laughs> with biology if I wasn't going to be a doctor or a vet or something like that. So so knowing that um, that can lead into something like research, I had just had no idea about at all. Um, but I'm really glad to be in that position now and and being you know being in a position to use what I know and, and discover things, you know, understanding all the stuff we don't know and, and asking questions uh, to, to move kind of the, the mass of knowledge forward. Any childhood memories? Do you have any particular ones? I mean, no pressure, if, if you can think of any. Um, no, I think other than, then I say kind of playing on the allotment uh, that my dad had, and my granddad had an allotment as well, and, and spending time in the garden. I would make snail farms and, you know, collect all the snails up in the garden and put them in a big tank with lots of, you know, dirt and leaves and things and watch them for a few hours and then let them go again. And we had school frogs and that kind of stuff. So just enjoying observing nature um, and being outdoors. I've always enjoyed being outdoors. And I think I'm really lucky to have a job that means that I can spend some time outdoors rather than you know, a lot of my time is still at the computer and you know, analyzing data and writing reports and papers, etc. But to have an opportunity to work outdoors is great because I really enjoy that. So your work is a lot of it is outdoor and you have done a lot of research, I think, in different parts of Africa also. Yeah. Uh, so now, I mean, I, can, I, I saw some of the research and definitely it is something which I don't think most of the people understand that how much it would affect some population, sometimes a large number of population mm -hmm. who are living there. So if you can explain more about your 
particular research with you? What other projects have you worked on or what is you're working on now? Uh, I think having an opportunity to work overseas is is hugely important to me. It's it's a privilege. It's a huge responsibility to to go out and, and make the best use of the time that I have overseas. But over the years now, I've developed a lot of experience working abroad, and uh, that started when I was doing my PhD. Uh, so I'd done a lot of laboratory work, and that's great. But it's really important to validate what you find in the lab, and if it actually applies in field circumstances as well. So as part of my PhD, I went to Burkina Faso, which is a country in West Africa. It's not very well known as a country. Um, but it has endemic malaria, but also some excellent research institutes um, who my supervisor was closely related to. So I spent a few weeks in Burkina Faso doing some field work with the teams there to test some of the ideas that I'd had and some of the observations that we'd found in the laboratory. And I uh, absolutely loved every minute of it. It was such an uh, important experience for me to, to see a different part of the world where the research that I was doing was immediately relevant and and had you know potential to to impact and uh, I remember one of my colleagues on that first trip had malaria and was just very well it's like a cold you know if you survive it as a child then um, as an adult you can have malaria multiple times and you feel quite under the weather and tired but you can get some drugs and, and probably get through it okay but for, for children pregnant women and the elderly it's a really really serious problem uh, so I absolutely loved working in Burkina Faso and I've been back very many times since then. Um, in 2014, uh, I was working for a month in Bobo Dialassi, which is in the southwest of the country. Uh, at the same time as there was a political coup, um, the president had been uh, trying to change the constitution and there was a popular uprising against uh, the then president, um, which resulted in um, martial complete uh, kind of military rule uh, all the land borders were closed uh, all of the air borders were closed so the airport was closed um, there was a, a daily curfew the entire center of the town where I was staying was set on fire the Ministry of Justice buildings were, were burnt down um, and we were basically uh, kind of boarded into our hotel with smoke billowing everywhere um, all of the telecommunication lines were down, so people were kind of running around on their mopeds trying to see what was happening and get the latest information. So that was a really quite scary experience for a few for a few days. Um, and I was incredibly well looked after by my colleagues and the places where I was staying. Um, they made sure that I knew everything that they knew was happening and we managed eventually to get back in touch with the UK and, and, and colleagues here at, at Greenwich and everyone was really, really good at make, about making sure that I was okay and what should I do, should I stay, should I wait, should we try and get out as soon as possible and uh, that was a really kind of eye-opening experience, <laughs> not one that I would necessarily recommend um, but it, it really did um, solidify kind of a love for Burkina and, and the people there because they everybody was just really convinced that no you just cannot change the constitution in the way that he wanted and we won't have it we won't tolerate it you're going and as soon as he went everything went back to normal and, and everybody just got on with life as they needed to um, and so that was quite a formative experience. And I've, I've been back since then, and we, we have a project there at the moment. And uh, they're just some, such fantastic colleagues to work with, um, such hardworking teams and, and incredibly talented. So it's a real honor to be able to keep working with them. But yes, since then I've worked, uh, I guess, lots of places um, in West Africa. So we also have current projects in Benin and Cameroon, and they've been really great to visit. Um, as well as collaborators in East Africa, so in Kenya, in Tanzania, and Ethiopia. Um, but the, the longest placement overseas I've had has been Malaysia. Uh, so I was there for probably about six months in total um, for uh, one project. And then, as I say, with Burkina, we've been back several times since then uh, to work on other research projects. And I think uh, having spent such a long time there, it, it does kind of grow in your heart, that kind of place. and. Really, it's a stunning landscape and great food, which is always a bonus. 
Um, but they, they have this uh, really interesting story with uh, macaque malaria and how it's being transmitted into people. So that's what I've been working on in Malaysia. And and having this opportunity not just to, to go in workplaces, but to meet colleagues um, who have such different experience to you um, and, and kind of have fantastic intellectual discussions about what problems they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis and how you can complement what they're doing and what they can do to, to complement what you're doing is, is really fantastic. And I think that kind of international aspect of research, especially for global problems like uh, uh, insect-borne diseases, is just really essential to have a fantastic kind of global team working on stuff and, and feeling part of that community is fabulous. I mean, this is, of course, very important, but I need to know what kind of food they have. <laughs> in Malaysia, <laughs> no. uh, what kind of which food do you like the most actually? Um, so I would say for me, it has to be the food that I've had in Malaysia. Oh, yeah. It's a because Malaysia is kind of quite a, an ethnically diverse country. You get fantastic Chinese food, Indian food, um, and kind of traditional Malay food, as well as these great fusions between all, all of these different cuisines that make things that are unique um, to Malaysia. So uh, laksa is fantastic. I love a good laksa and a nasi goreng, which is the um, kind of staple Malaysian breakfast, which is rice, kind of deep fried small fish, um, some peanuts, an egg. And yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I, I love I love Malaysian food too. Yes, we have global problems, but we do <laughs> yeah. good food. Everybody likes yes. good food, so. <laughs> okay, so do you think um, the one of the experiences that you described um, for that martial art, kind of a stressful situation, mm. do you think that had made your bond to that place a bit stronger yeah. in some way? Yeah, certainly. I mean, going through an experience like that, not just as an outsider seeing it on the news, but you know, being with people who who are affected by this, not just for the moment that it's in the headlines, but whose entire future it would be shaping. You know, the nature of their democracy, um, how their government works, how the people are represented. It, it was really interesting. It was interesting to to see all of that from from their perspective and and the things that they were worried about. Um, but also the the kind of um, pragmatic aspect you know it is Burkina in places is incredibly poor and lots of people are subsistence farmers which means they basically just grow the crops that they need to feed themselves and their families and it shouldn't be underestimated the impact that it has to stop doing those things to stop looking after your crops and your animals and to go and demonstrate we're very lucky that we have the right to go and protest as we wish politically um, but if we take a day off work, it's really generally not the end of the world. But for, for people in, in that position, if you don't go and look after your crops, nobody else is really going to do that for you. So it was really a, a big deal for a lot of people to, to take time away from, from doing those activities to go and, and make their voices heard. Um, so it was it was a it was a bonding experience with a lot of my colleagues and and people that uh, uh, I was working with at the time. And and you know seeing their heartfelt emotions about what what was happening and their hopes and dreams for what would happen in the future, um, and there have been some issues in Burkina since then. Nothing quite as uh, as as bad as those few days, and I think they are slowly working their way forward. And I, I just really hope that that it all comes right for them and and they have what they want in in government because it's no less than they deserve. So. So what is the problem we have over there and what are you or other teams are actually doing on the field itself? I mean, what are what are the strategies or techniques or what are the research which is going on and what are we hoping to get out of there? So in uh, large parts of Africa and um, that are malaria endemic, so they have year round malaria, um, the, the actual mosquitoes that carry the parasite are uh, Gen well, they tend to be night biting. So the intervention of using bed nets has been incredibly successful and that should absolutely absolutely continue and be a huge focus for donors to support making sure everybody can spend the night underneath a bed net because it really does reduce your likelihood of having an infected mosquito bite you. Um, but alongside that, there are some challenges. So the bed nets are treated with insecticide and the mosquitoes can become resistant to those insecticides. And there's also some concern that 
uh, whilst those mosquitoes that come into a house and feed at night time are well controlled by bed nets but there are other species of mosquito that are perhaps not as important uh, for transmitting disease but still can transmit it but that they feed outdoors more frequently so a bed net's not going to help you outdoors unless you want to take your bed net and, and do you know carry it around with you for all your activities um, so we really need to start thinking about how we can do uh, some let's call it mopping up you know we can deal with mosquitoes indoors with bed nets and you can spray inside a house and things like this but for those few species that can transmit malaria by biting you outdoors what interventions can we think of to to deal with those and that's a really big challenge and we don't know the answer to that <laughs> there isn't at the moment a particularly good way of dealing with that lots of new ideas coming um, from research teams globally at the moment which is fantastic to see and, and they're getting lots of support to develop those ideas so uh, from my my part and my colleagues we, we focus a lot on understanding the fundamental aspects of the mosquitoes behavior that lead them to bite a person be that a person indoors or outdoors um, because that's the the key behavior that we need to interfere with we need to disrupt that aspect of their behavior um, and that's how we can halt disease transmission or reduce disease transmission. So the, the actual fieldwork depends on the project, but we spend a lot of time um, looking at these, what we call host associated cues. So that the stimuli that we as a, as a person give off that the mosquito may respond to. So it could be odors as we just, we talked about earlier, um, but it could also be how we look, how we move, it could be the heat from our body temperature. Um, so being able to look at all of those different cues and see whether or not we can exploit them in some way uh, to attract mosquitoes to some kind of mimic human, get them to, to target something that's not a human and then in that process, can we kill them in some way? Can we remove them from, from the equation? So we're reducing the number of mosquitoes that are likely to bite people. So I remember um, when I was in Pakistan and there was a <clears throat> dengue outbreak. Um, they they were just spraying um, whole streets yeah. with chemicals, and it's I don't know what, what was the solution. I don't think this was a good idea. Although, <laughs> yeah, it's, so so that's a, a slightly different situation because it's a different type of mosquito. So. So dengue virus, Zika virus, chikungunya, uh, yellow fever, they're all transmitted by a day-biting mosquito called Aedes. Uh, there are different species of Aedes, but Aedes aegypti is the main culprit for those viruses. And they will bite during the day. And they also tend to bite, um, well, they tend to breed quite readily in urban environments, whereas malaria tends to be more of a rural issue. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, some of the some of the strategies that we have really are quite as basic as fogging and, and spraying at whole areas, whole neighborhoods um, with atomized insecticide. Uh, and they tend not to be particularly specific to mosquitoes, so they can affect other insects that are present as well. Insects you might not wish to actually kill. Uh, it's a really it's a really tough one as somebody who's quite passionate about the environment uh, to know that you might also be killing non-target insects, maybe beneficial pollinators and and things that you actually want to have around. Uh, but at the same time, you have to balance that against the the human suffering, the you know morbidity and mortality that come from some of these diseases. Um, so. It's a, it's a really difficult thing to balance that public health versus environmental and ethical questions. And I don't have the answer <laughs> to yeah, that. No, it's, it's such a, it's a, it's a difficult topic to think about, but uh, for me professionally, ultimately I come down on the side of, of public health. Uh, but you know, all the time there are people researching these topics to try and find innovative ways of either delivering insecticides in a completely targeted way or, or moving away from insecticides. So, um, so that you can reduce some of those uh, side impacts from doing those interventions. Yeah, I mean, I'm team human. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sometimes we do go a little too out of balance, maybe sometimes. Uh, interest, just one curious question, just about this, you know, this balance of finding out where, what to do. Of course, we are trying our best to find what solution we can find so we can target, you know, specific mosquitoes mm -hmm. so we don't kill off all the other 
species which help our flora. So, have you? Um, is there is there any uh, some sort of a behavior which you have read about or you have learned about where certain mosquitoes? Uh, the reason why I'm thinking about insects, it's because insects are mostly in large number are present very close to their environment and they i don't know if they go so far away but they're, they're very they're very close proximity as compared to other life form is there a behavior which you've seen where they actually abandon their species or group some sort of a behavior and go too much into the environment and that is some sort of um, is it an abnormal behavior is it I'm just thinking when we said you have seen all of our species also. Sometimes we are so much into um, some sort of environmental or some sort some some sort of an ideology where you are like, yeah, you know, more important is to protect those insects. If human are dying, this is just the consequence. So, is there any example? Just out of I know it's a very odd question. I can't think of any. Um... I mean, certainly for insects, their uh, central nervous system is not really going to be integrating anything into a kind of thinking about them or us or, you know, me versus the other mosquitoes or anything on that scale. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't think of any. That is the reason why I was actually interested, <laughs> because if there is, there, I mean, yeah, they, they're not having a subjective reality <laughs> where they are having a layer of cultural information or maybe, I don't know, we haven't found out yet. But uh, so maybe there is some sort of a code uh, virus which they get because there are some insects are, or, or there are some other insects which actually influence other hosts to mm. do a very mad kind of behavior where they completely do something which they're not supposed to do. Yeah, so so there are um, instances where the like a parasitic inf uh, invader can change the uh, behavior of the host that it's living in, um, and there is some emerging evidence that uh, the parasite, the malaria parasite called Plasmodium, that they can influence to some extent the mosquito's behavior um, by perhaps increasing their biting rate. Um, so a mosquito only needs to feed to produce eggs. They're not interested in spreading disease. It's not something that they're, they're kind of actively doing. It's just a passive thing that happens when they're feeding because of uh, their infection with a parasite. Um, but the parasite may be increasing their uh, tendency to bite repeatedly once they've already had some, some blood already. Um, so there are parasite and host interactions. Um, and there has been some research in the last year that shows that when uh, humans are infected with malaria parasites, they become slightly more attractive to malaria mosquitoes. Um, and that could be something to do with the odours that they emit when they're clinically uh, showing symptoms of malaria. Uh, also, they'll probably have a slightly elevated temperature. And we know that mosquitoes are responsive to, to temperature as well. So there are these subtle parasite-host interactions that can uh, affect the dynamics between uh, the, the mosquito, the human host, and the parasite, because all three are living and, and influencing one another, whether they intend to or not. Fascinating, because, I mean, I guess malaria, that's why it's such a hard thing to you know, counter is because I think the malaria parasite has got their system locked down for millions of years or somehow, I don't know. But do you know when that, I mean, is there any research about when it started or how? There has been some research and interestingly, um, the, the main malaria parasite is called uh, Plasmodium falciparum uh, and that's the main um, malaria causing parasite in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and the evidence suggests that that initially involved in other non-human primates, possibly gorillas. Uh, so in evolutionary time, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, uh, at some point that shifted from being present in gorillas to being present in, in humans. So it's important not to forget our non-human ancestry uh, before we turned into Homo sapiens. So. Gorillas use, I mean, gorillas do get infected by malaria, 
even now, I mean, they, they haven't developed any resistance or anything to malaria. Yeah, there's lots of different malaria species. Uh, so there are five that we consider to be uh, infective to humans. Uh, Plasmodium falciparum, this malaria in sub-Saharan Africa, is the, the main culprit for most clinical cases of malaria. The uh, Plasmodium pre-falciparum, which is the species that was found uh, ancestrally in gorillas. But there's all kinds of malaria parasites, some that just infect birds, um, some that infect other mammal species. So there are, uh, you know, we think about our own kind of woes and our own issues with, with human malaria, but there are lots of other systems with malaria parasites that aren't of clinical importance to, to humans. I think this, this would help me now to understand what are the complications you are talking about because now these all subtleties and such a this when this problem started what is going on between a parasite and a host and yeah. a carrier and who is in, who is uh, i mean infecting what so with all these complications now um, and you would know more way much more so this is better to have just this much so now you're on the field and so you're t trying to kind of intervene to somehow solve this mm -hmm. issue. So what are the actual techniques which you which are working or which you found very useful? Uh, so one area that we're working on is developing what we're describing as a host decoy trap. Um, the host decoy trap is, is something that we've developed here at Greenwich and we have a, a, a small uh, a medium enterprise partnership with a, a German company called Biogents and Biogents are internationally renowned for producing mosquito traps for Aedes mosquitoes, the species I mentioned before that will spread dengue virus and Zika and chikungunya. Um, they're a lot easier to catch than malaria mosquitoes because they fly during the day and, and we can manipulate their behavior already quite well. Um, so we're working with Biogents to um, make a prototype of some of the uh, concepts that we've developed based on our laboratory work. And that is really focusing on this idea that I mentioned before, where you have human characteristics uh, that we know are particularly attractive to mosquitoes that are looking for a blood meal. So we can incorporate things like our body temperature. We know that from our laboratory studies, uh, Anopheles mosquitoes, the malaria mosquitoes, will land on temperatures between 30 and 40 degrees if they can also smell human odours. So we can combine human odour smells, either from a, a real person who's maybe protected in a tent somewhere and we're just sucking the, the smells that come from them and the carbon dioxide that comes from their breath, because that's very attractive to mosquitoes. Uh, we can combine that with uh, a thermal signature, something between 30 and 40 degrees to try and encourage the mosquitoes to land on it. And can we then develop some technology around that behavior to kill the mosquitoes as they're landing? We can also then combine that with visual stimuli. So we know that even though mosquitoes that carry malaria are nocturnal, they are very responsive to visual stimuli. So they'll be responding to uh, high contrast objects. So we can combine again, the olfactory cues, the smells with the, the heat signature and something visual to then boost again, the number of mosquitoes that we can capture. Uh, and then using those principles, there are probably different ways of applying them for different purposes. And for example, if you're using that as a research tool to answer a research question um, in the field, you might use something slightly different in employing those those three stimuli. If you're looking for something that is uh, an operational tool to control malaria and you maybe are thinking, well, we want to roll this out to hundreds of thousands of people, you'll probably be looking at a slightly different way of doing it, something that's much more cost effective, um, simple to use, kind of foolproof, weatherproof, lasts a long time. So uh, as I'm kind of developing uh, the, this awareness of, uh, of product development, uh, becoming a little bit more aware of some of the, the difficulties that come with that and how it can be quite a, a labor intensive and time consuming process to make interventions that are based on scientific evidence, but make them practical and affordable uh, and, and easy to use. So we are also working with with social scientists and our user group communi communities so public health entomologists local communities to try and find ways of making our ideas 
uh, translate into something practical. Yeah, yeah, engineers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm not an engineer, and I would oh, never yes. profess to be. So yes. we we definitely need to have some interdisciplinary projects where we draw on other people's skills. So. Another interdisciplinary project which you are working on is Wetland Life. Yes. Um, would you like to introduce what is the project? Yeah, Wetland Life um, is a, a project run by the University of Greenwich uh, and it's a very interdisciplinary project. So we have not only entomologists like myself, but historians, economists, social scientists, um, uh, economists all working together to understand the value of wetlands in England from all of those different perspectives but with a focus on their habitat as mosquito breeding sites. So the rationale for the project really comes from uh, a growing awareness that wetlands have a huge value both socially, economically, in terms of climate change mitigation. Uh, so many, many benefits can come from wetlands and there's a huge drive to create or restore wetlands in the UK and globally in fact. But there can be some concern from communities adjacent to where you might be thinking of restoring a wetland. Uh, that you are creating a perfect breeding ground for lots and lots of mosquitoes and nobody wants that. So part of our project is is looking at making sure people understand that not all mosquitoes bite people, that they're an important part of the food chain, they're an important food source for birds. So if you're going to a, a wetland to, to watch birds, you need to have some insects for them to feed on and, and mosquitoes are, are an excellent food source. Uh, but also uh, doing some ecology to understand the different species that we have in different types of wetland because some some wetlands are really you know not a good habitat for mosquitoes others are slightly better um, but in the UK there there are many different mosquito species and and some will only feed on birds some will feed on people and, and maybe cause a bit of a nuisance uh, and can we understand those habitats that do have nuisance biting mosquitoes in and can we perhaps off, offer wetland managers or rangers at, at local wildlife reserves some advice to say, well, if you have a habitat like this, if you want to reduce the mosquito numbers, then you could consider um, clearing vegetation at this time of year or flooding at this time of year. Um, so very simple measures that can alleviate some of the public concerns around wetlands. So one of the things which I actually got from reading about the project and being part of it is that um, other other uh, research groups which are doing more research into either wetlands or forests, uh, the, the approach is very different and that's what makes me really optimistic actually and also a bit emotional because it's a big step to understand just as a human in your daily life that um, yeah, to have nature it's not some moral obligation from some extraterrestrial code or, or it's not a thing which is a responsibility which your parents have told you that you have to do it. I mean, wetland life actually literally is part of who humans are because that's we have evolved in sub-Saharan Africa and wetlands were around us maybe in some sort of way or, or forests. So now even the researchers are looking um, to these habitats, not as, as a device which is somehow outside and actually trying to probe and understand what it is, but they are actually looking of uh, like what these uh, habitats are as being completely integrated part of that landscape. So to have projects, I think, around this concept I think it would help a lot to create, to remove that resistance and also this huge longing which all of us feel but we don't like, there's no, no, you don't pinpoint it because I think it's been third, fourth generation, most of the people have been living in cities so you never ever spend one year in pure nature. Mm -hmm. So do, do you think this is something which is you, you see around? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as part of the Wetland Life Project, we're looking uh, very holistically at the idea of uh, cultural ecosystem services. So all the cultural benefits that arise from wetlands and associations with wetlands, be that going and just enjoying something that's aesthetically pretty, like a sunset on a riverbank, um, but also thinking about uh, the food that comes from wetlands. So 
uh, delicious fresh fish. You know, that's some something produced out of some wetland habitats uh, that has some sort of cultural association. Um, so understanding some of those uh, ecosystem services, their place in culture and in humans ongoing relationship with with wetlands. We've always utilized wetlands for various purposes. Uh, and as you say, lots of human civilizations have been dependent on wetlands for, for a very long time. And, and being aware of the fact that, uh, yes, there can be some challenges with them. Um, I mean, certainly in the UK, we're lucky in that at the moment we don't have any mosquito-borne diseases. Um, you know, trying to make sure that we have a good evidence base to, to understand the ecology, to understand um, the, the mosquito uh, fauna that's present in different wetland habitats and, and make a good effort of communicating that to people, but also thinking about those other kind of health and well-being benefits that come from wetlands to people is really important. Yeah. So what is the future of this research? I mean, or, or how are you um, thinking? I mean, what, is, what, what do you think is going to come out of this generally, you know, long term? Well, hopefully. Um, we will have some good impacts from the project. We're collaborating with Public Health England uh, because they have to deal with these um, mosquito nuisance issues and, and concerns from the public on, on a regular basis. Uh, and what we're hoping is that at the end of the project, certainly from uh, ecology data, is that we can produce a set of guidelines for wetland managers. So that could be through different wildlife conservation charities or local councils who have responsibility for managing wetlands. Give them some guidelines to say, if you have this kind of wetland habitat, you might expect to find this kind of mosquito species here, or you might expect no mosquitoes, or just one species at a very certain time of year, just so that they can either communicate that to their regular site users, give them some simple guidance about how to avoid any potential issues, so wearing long trousers and long sleeve shirt in summer evenings, for example, uh, or to, to communicate effectively that actually at this time of year, you're really not going to have a, an, any issue with mosquitoes. So that will hopefully relieve some of the pressure on Public Health England who have to deal with uh, these on a case-by-case -case responsive basis so that uh, the wetland managers can kind of do like a simple risk assessment for their site and, and any mosquito nuisances. Um, we're also working quite closely with um, artists who are taking a, a very different view of wetlands and and the artistic aspect of that of the project is kind of still emerging but we're hoping to have a series of exhibitions at some of our case study sites um, across England so we're really really looking forward to, to planning those um, for the next kind of 18 months uh, and hopefully you know they'll be open to the public for everybody to come and enjoy some of the uh, who knows what kind of artistic outputs we'll have at the moment, but it's all being uh, worked on on presently to to have a different way of thinking about wetlands and their cultural value. Is there any research which you are working or you're about to work on? You want to share something interesting, some anything? Uh, yeah. So um, my colleagues in Kenya and I and, and some uh, partners from the states were about to publish a paper in a journal called Parasites and Vectors. Uh, in which we find that um, our host decoy traps that I mentioned earlier, they uh, you can use them with human odour and you can catch lots of malaria mosquitoes, which is good, but you can also bait them with odours from cows and catch many, many, many more of a certain type of malaria mosquito. Um, so that's really interesting because there is some discussion about whether or not you can use cattle odor or cattle as a way of baiting uh, mosquito traps to to reduce the population and control malaria or to sample the population so you can understand what's happening a bit better so that should hopefully be published in the next couple of weeks so do you think it's a it's a it's an easier way to capture mosquito that's why it's potentially uh, potentially for any community that uses uh, cattle as livestock um, then obviously you have a, an abundant source of odor readily available. Um, whether or not we can uh, tap into that uh, to improve the way that we sample or collect mosquitoes would be really incredible to, to develop. So it's the first step in, in a long process, but that's how you know, science works. So we take one step at a time. Brilliant. Before we end, if you have any 
cute, interesting, stressful, whatever kind of story about working in the field, anything? Well, I mean, field work is really um, their rules unto themselves <laughs> if you're doing field work. Um, you have to be prepared to get wet, be it from pouring rain or lots and lots of sweat, especially if you're working in the tropics. Um, you can have some unpleasant experiences uh, if you're not used to local food or, you know, you can pick up some, some pretty nasty uh, tummy bugs and, and you have to find ways of being quite resilient and, and working through that. Um, but field work is, is really uh, a fantastic aspect of my job and, and certainly something that I enjoy, but it, it really is a challenge and, and sometimes it, it, it can be really frustrating, um, especially if you're dealing with you know, bad weather because uh, you, you know, if you're traveling, you've just got the time that you've got in the field and you have to get on with stuff. Um, it doesn't matter if it's 40 degrees or you know, minus five, <laughs> you have to keep going. Um, so that can be a bit, a bit frustrating, but um, I think if you're, if you're hardy and you enjoy the outdoors, it's, it's not too much of a price to pay to enjoy going out early in the morning to collect your mosquito traps and watching the sunrise and then going out again at night time to set them and watching the sunset. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. But what is the hardest um, weather conditions you have been like? What, what do you think it was that? Oh my goodness, this this was tough. So I would say there's three different extreme weathers that can be really hard to work in. So one is when it's incredibly hot and dry. So for example, in Burkina Faso in the dry season, it can be you know 45 degrees. Your phone will turn off because it's just too hot and that tells you you should probably go in but um we do try to do work in the mornings and evenings anyway uh, so it, we're avoiding the worst heat of the day uh, the second would be in extreme humidity so malaysia is incredibly hot and humid um, and the humidity just means you're just soaking wet all the time and you can get incredibly dehydrated. So I always carry some oral rehydration salts. And if you feel like you're waking up with a hangover, but you haven't been drinking, it's because you're dehydrated just through through sweating so much. So, so being aware that you really have to keep your fluids up. And then the rest is pouring rain. I mean, it just makes everything really difficult, whether it's hot or cold. Um, so that could be here in the UK for wetland life. We've been completely soaked through. Um, or it could be in, in the tropics somewhere where you're in the middle of a tropical thunderstorm. Uh, if you're trying to do practical field work in setting up experiments and it's really hammering it down, you just need to sometimes know when to stop pushing. Take 10 minutes, wait for it to pass and, and then move on. Perfect. I mean, this is perfect and I guess that um, balance and the beauty of our environment <laughs> yeah. and then the challenges which comes with it. Thank you, Francis. Thanks a lot. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. For Me too. It. Thanks for talking. I enjoyed Good. it. Thank you so much. Thanks.